This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. Our scripture that was read earlier came from the book of Genesis, the fourth chapter, and the reading was from the first through the ninth verses. But allow me just for this moment to lift up the sixth verse, which says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must Master it. A horse suddenly came galloping quickly down this road. It seemed as though the man riding it was in a hurry and that he had somewhere important that he needed to go. Another man who was standing alongside the road shouted, Where are you going? The man on the horse replied, I don't know. Ask the horse. I told this little story because in many ways, the horse represents the things in our lives that we cannot seem to control. And the story illustrates how we are running around mindlessly and endlessly at the mercy of these uncontrollable things reacting to our environment and our circumstances instead of responding with mindfulness and conscious intention. Where are you going? I don't know. Ask the horse. The horse pulls us running wildly all over, rushing without purpose, sometimes causing us to just be busy. And because we have gotten so accustomed to living this kind of way, it has become our habit and our norm. So we run and we run and we run, ultimately going nowhere. Perhaps If we were to become a horse trainer, or better still, a horse whisperer, we can learn to understand the nature of the horse. And with some insight, we can teach the horse to go where it is that we want the horse to go. Perhaps we can then become our own masters and we can master our own habits. In a way, perhaps we can tame the horse. But what happens when we cannot tame this beast? What happens when we cannot master our habits? What then becomes our option? This is the case in the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? He was really saying, I have no control over this beast in my life. So as we take on the challenges of this new year, 
and all the things that seem to be causing us to run wildly without purpose or aim, I want to speak a message today about self-control and taking on a particular horse that I have titled in this sermon, The Untamable Beast. The Untamable Beast. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we've come now to the preaching hour. I have asked you privately to allow the preacher to come. Dip now my tongue in lightning, that I may speak a word that does not tickle the ear or the fancy, but that it speaks to the heart of the beast within, that we may find through your strength and through your power and through your might, the ability to conquer it all. Let's preach now, for your children are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Aristotle is famous for saying, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is then not an act, but a habit. In other words, the things that we tend to do consistently have a way of becoming a part of the normal way in which we function and live our lives day to day. The more we do something, the more it becomes a part of us and to the point where it eventually defines us. These things we call habits. A habit is a pattern of behavior that is regularly repeated. And if it's repeated often enough, it actually occurs without conscious thought. Put another way, a habit is an activity that once someone started and it's being done repeatedly over and over again, it becomes an automatic process that becomes quite challenging for us to stop. When someone has a habitual behavior, they may not even realize that they're actually doing this thing simply because it is so routine and it has now taken part of their subconscious activity. I'm reminded of the great basketball player Michael Jordan. And all of us who may be familiar or grew up with Michael Jordan playing basketball, we know that no matter where Michael Jordan got the ball, he was able to jump and to shoot and more than likely make the basket. Now the point is, is that his body had become so accustomed to doing that over and over and over again that he probably didn't even think about his shots. His body had muscle memory, which through the repeated behavior just knew what to do no matter where he found himself on a basketball court. And for that, he became a formidable opponent to my New York Knicks, and I'm still needing some kind of therapy over that period in my life. But nonetheless, he had muscle memory, he had developed the routine and the repeated behavior to the point where it became habitual. From the earliest years of our life, 
we have all taken on various habits. Whether we were children sucking our thumb or even biting our fingernails, when we got older, it may even be eating breakfast at a particular time of the day or even overspending at shops or even perhaps procrastinating. All of these things are habits that we develop over time and it becomes a little difficult for us to now break them. Either way, it is something that we do that has become so comfortable in our lives that we continue doing it without even thinking about it. So the question becomes, how are habits really formed? Well, they're formed by something we call a trigger event. When a trigger event occurs, it drives a behavior that when that behavior now becomes consistent, you have an automatic urge to do the action. For example, when you wake up in the morning, you start the coffee machine, right? The waking up in the morning becomes the trigger and the coffee machine the habit. When you get to work, you check your email. The getting to work becomes the trigger, the habit is checking your email. When you get stressed out and you eat junk food, <laughs> the trigger is the stress, the habit becomes the junk food. Our lives are filled with this trigger-habit combination. And often, without even us being aware of them, we, we do things without even thinking about it because we're not aware of the various triggers in our lives that's driving the habitual behavior. So we get mad and we say, why do I keep doing this? And we try to stop doing the habit, but really, we need to figure out what the trigger was. You see... I'm one of those people that drive the same way home all the time. And because I drive the same way home all the time, I make turns left and right without even thinking about it because I'm already so triggered that I'm in the habit of getting home. So through consistent repetition over the years, behaviors that started with actions that were initially performed through some conscious choice gradually become automatic and less and less conscious. But I want to bring your attention to something very, very important about these triggers and these habits. There is something called the feedback loop. <laughs> you see, the feedback loop is something that reinforces the habit. What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let me give you an example. If you are stressed out, and you eat junk food, what ends up happening is you get some kind of pleasure from that junk food, and that pleasure that you get from that food is the feedback that you get for doing it. And it's a good feeling feedback. If you don't like healthy food, and every time you eat healthy food, it's boring and it's bland and it's unpleasant, that is a negative feedback for eating healthy food. So my point is, whatever the feedback is for whatever it is you're doing, it serves to reinforce the habit. So my question then becomes, what do you do when you want to get rid of a habit? It's simply that you not just change the behavior, but that you look at the feedback and what the feedback is doing to reinforcing the habit. If you want to break a habit, church, hear me. Reverse the process. Reverse the process where you create some kind of positive feedback 
for the good habits that you want to form. And then create some negative feedback for when you don't do the habit you want to keep forming. You see, the feedback loop is always telling you that what you are experiencing from this thing is either going to help you or hurt you. And depending on how it makes you feel will determine whether or not you keep doing it or you don't. For the truth of the matter is, if, so, if you do something that brings you no pleasure, then you will not want to keep doing that thing. So we need to get to the place as a people where sin no longer sends the feedback that this is pleasurable. So I went through all of this to make the point that you actually have within you the capacity and the ability to master any habit, and it does not have to master you. You can control the horse. But there's a horse that you cannot control. There is a beast that as good as you may think you are, it has a grip on you beyond your own ability and my own ability to get through it. And that beast is called envy. Look with me at the text very carefully again. Verse 1 says, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offerings. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, here it is, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The part that I want you to look at, starting at verse 4b, it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. This is the first time that envy surfaced in human history. Cain envied Abel because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. In fact, even before Cain killed Abel, God had warned him saying, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The sin crouching at the door of Cain's heart was envy. He, either he would master it or it would master him. Sadly, envy won and Cain slew his brother Abel. The Bible, church, goes to great length to show us that this thing called envy is always an issue of the brothers. Hear me clearly. This is a spiritual matter, church, and I want you to hear me in your spirit. Envy 
is always an issue of the brothers. The only reason that envy did not start with Adam was because Adam didn't have a brother. But as soon as brothers appeared on the scene, envy sprang to life. I'm talking spiritual things. Envy is not usually an issue between a father and a son or between a son and a father. Envy always shows up between the brothers. A, a true father does not envy his son. And a true son would not envy his father. As a matter of fact, a true son would want to be like the father. And sometimes the fathers, if they're like me, want to be like the son in certain areas where you see them excel. It, it, it's a wonderful exchange. But by saying that envy is an issue among the brothers, I mean a lot more than simply natural siblings. I'm referring to those who serve side by side in the same general sphere of influence. So, so the members of some group are like brothers. And the leader of whatever group that is would be like a father. Likewise, the members of this church, all of the members of this church, whether you are male or female, all of the members of this church, you are all considered brothers, and the pastor would be seen as the father figure. All the pastors in a city would be considered brothers, whether they are male or female, and the bishop would be like the father. So you don't find the male pastor or the female pastor envying the bishop, but you will find the male pastor or the female pastor envying the male pastor or the female pastor. You see, envy is an issue of the brothers. Now, to be clear, and I want to make sure that I don't miss you all in this, make no mistake about it. <laughs> envy is also an issue among the sisters. The sisters usually don't envy the mothers. And but certainly they envy the sisters. <laughs> the brothers envy the brothers and the sisters envy the sisters. So it stands to reason that this thing called envy, which is crouching at the door, it always works along gender lines. The sisters will usually envy each other for such things as popularity or physical appearance, social status, and children, whereas brothers will usually envy each other over career accomplishments, financial clout, or even ministry giftings. When Jacob married the sisters, Rachel and Leah, and Leah bore children, but Rachel did not, the Bible says Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. You see, what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, envy doesn't stop with just being envious. It always wants to take you to the place of death. Need not look much further than Sarah and Hagar, Miriam and Zipporah, or even Hannah and Penina to see envy at work. I'm talking to your spirits. So my point is this, if you are in a group of your peers, whether man or woman, it is very likely that envy is near somewhere crouching at the door waiting for an opportunity to rear its ugly head. Now envy is an iniquity of the heart and it requires an occasion to call it forth. Church, I'm talking spiritual things. When envy is lurking in your heart, when you're among the brothers or the sisters, 
It won't show its ugly head until an occasion calls for it. Something has to wake up the envy that is crouching at your door. <laughs> it, it, it clothes itself in a way that every one of us in spiritual warfare understand envy is what we call a hider spirit. It's a hiding spirit. It, was, it will always hide behind something else. For example, envy likes to hide behind the spirit of anger. Envy likes to hide behind the spirit of fear. So make no mistake about it. Envy as a demonic spirit hides waiting for an occasion to call it forth. So, so, when, so when Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? His envy was hiding behind the perceived nobility of caring for his own affairs. In other words, I'm minding my own business. I'm doing my own thing. Am I my brother's keeper? But envy was hiding. If I ask the question to many of you today, are you your brother's or your sister's keeper? You will say to me, absolutely. Yes, I am. But is that really true? For are you your brother's or your sister's keeper whenever you have an opportunity on your job for advancement? Are you your brother's or your sister's keeper when the pastor gives your brother or sister an opportunity that they, for them to lead and not you? Are you your brother's and your sister's keeper when your brother or your sister got married and you're still waiting? Envy crouches at the door. And listen, brothers and sisters, the object of envy's complaint is actually at God himself. God was the one that approved Abel's gift. So God was envy's problem. Now God, stay with me, church. We're going somewhere. Now God, in his own wisdom, knows exactly how to call out envy and to reveal our tendencies to be envious. One way that God usually does this is by pouring out his blessings upon one of the brothers or sisters. In fact, when my brother was struggling, I found that I could pray for him with energy and sincerity of heart. I'm speaking metaphorically. And God answered my prayer. And started pouring out his blessings upon my brother. And something exploded inside of me and within my heart that I could no longer pray for my brother the way I used to. When God started to bless my brother, my pity had turned into envy. Church, listen to me carefully. You have no problem. We have no problem praying for people that are down and out. But the moment God answers our prayers and we start to see these people seemingly becoming more blessed than we are, look at how you pray. Because I'm telling you that it would appear to you that God has preference for their offering than he does for yours. And sin crouches at your door. The first sin committed by Adam and Eve in the garden, triggered a release of something called death, which, as seen with the brothers Cain and Abel, has utterly shaped our world today. In response to death over years and years and years, kings, priests, 
Pharisees, Sadducees, all have tried to create strategies and rules to avoid sinning and to be free from the consequence of death. So in other words, from the time of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, sin has become a habit and it is untamable. So untamable was sin that God says it is crouching at your door. But the truth is, you and I by ourselves, we cannot master it. The Apostle Paul says, we do know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. This is Paul. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good. But I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. But it is sin living in me that does it. In other words, Paul is talking about the untamable Beast. He's talking about the habits and the things that we have become so accustomed to, the things that we become so used to in our lives that we don't even think they are wrong anymore. The pleasure that comes from doing the things that are so against God and so against what God has instituted in his word has become anathema to you and to me. Sin has become friendly. Sin has become comfortable. Sin has become nice. Sin has become pleasurable. That brothers and sisters, what I'm preaching to you is that it is no longer crouching at your door. It is in you. It is in you. And so pastor, you preach. What are we to do about this? Many of you can attest to the fact that there are things in your own lives that you have become slaves to. You can admit it. While it may not be sin per se, it might as well be, because as much as you try to get away from it, you just cannot. When the habits form, they become footholds. And when you cannot stop them, they become strongholds. And there is nothing that you and I can do to stop sin when it has become a stronghold in your life. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking about the untamable beast. Our pulpits are empty and they are void of power because we do not speak the truth about sin. It is an untamable beast. And it not only crouches at our door, it rests in our hearts. It rests in our living room. It is all around us. It is our friend. But we have hope as believers in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I am telling you, we have 
hope. You have hope. How do you know? This is what Jesus says. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one, Jesus says, no one, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The Bible tells us that Satan is a strong man. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is the devil. He is our adversary. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is looking for the ones that are spiritually weak and the ones that have footholds so he can turn them into strongholds. He wants to keep you stuck in your sinful habits because as the strong man, you are powerless to resist him, even in your own strength. But the Bible tells us that while you and I were dead in our trespasses and in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to that cross. And after disarming the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle, triumphing over them on the cross. You see, the chief priests and the Pharisees, with their envy of Jesus, because he was a brother. <laughs> he was a brother rabbi. You see, their envy needed an occasion, a situation for it to come forth. You see, they tried to get him when he was with the woman at the well. They tried to get him when the woman washed his feet with her hair. They tried to get him when they brought the woman caught in adultery. They tried to get him, but the fact of the matter is they needed a real occasion. So they said, are you the one? Are you the one? And he says, I am. They then saw that their envy now had the right to lead exactly where I tell you envy takes us to death. So they nailed him to a cross, to that rugged cross. They pierced his hands and his feet and they pierced his side. And they turned what they thought was the vindication of their envy into the suffering of one man who would die for the sins of the world. Little did they know that when they killed Christ, they did exactly what Cain did when he killed Abel. For the scriptures tell us that God said, your brother's blood cries out to me. So Jesus on the cross, his blood cried out to the Father. And he decided then and then that death would not hold him down. Sin would not win for death 
Where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? Jesus overcame sin, that untamable beast, and he has made it subject to you and to me. So while it may be crouching at the door, crouch all you want, for you are no longer gonna toss me to and fro. You're no longer mastering my desires. You're no longer gonna make me succumb to my sinful nature. You will no longer keep me a slave to sin because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan and he has given us back our authority. Therefore, therefore, <laughs> if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you end up obeying its desires. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Put to death whatever is worldly in you. Stay away from every form of evil. Hate the evil. Cling to what is good. And let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. It means, my brothers and sisters, all of this means that you are able to overcome your habits, your footholds, and your strongholds, and that you can master the untamable beast with Christ who strengthens you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and, and Christ holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave, and he can tame any beast. Christ can tame any beast in your life. So because of Jesus who lives within our hearts, when the question is asked, am I my brother's or my sister's keeper? You can confidently say, yes, I am. I don't know if you caught it. Yes, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. I am. For he is the great. I am. And if you cannot, then you already know who your master is. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. <laughs>